Hello everyone and welcome to the September 7th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. Uber drivers scored a victory when a federal judge ruled that they could move forward with a class action lawsuit that seeks to designate them as employees, not independent contractors. The San Francisco federal judge ruled for the plaintiffs, denying the on-demand transportation company's motion for a quick judgment and allowing the lawsuit to proceed as a class action. The decision could have deep implications for Uber and other companies in the fast-growing on-demand economy. Uber now stands to lose far more than if the case had proceeded as a suit involving only three drivers. In addition to potentially being on the hook for back wages, sick leave, expenses and benefits such as workers' compensation coverage, the company could be ordered to pay gratuities owed to thousands of former drivers. And that doesn't even touch on what a loss would mean for Uber's independent contractor reliant business model, which has earned the company a $50 billion valuation. Plaintiff lawyers are also representing Lyft drivers in a separate class action lawsuit against Lyft, Uber's top competitor. They said the decision was a major victory for Uber drivers. The class, however, is not as big as they had hoped the judge would certify. The certified class excludes current and recent Uber drivers bound by Uber's 2014 arbitration clause. The Uber spokesperson said this leaves them with only a tiny fraction of the class of 160,000 the plaintiffs were seeking. Uber spokesperson said the company plans to appeal. A trial date has not yet been set. And now our crime report. A Santa Barbara area physician known as the Candyman, who wrote numerous prescriptions for powerful painkillers for patients, many of whom were drug addicts, was convicted after a jury trial on 79 drug trafficking charges. 67-year-old Julio Gabriel Diaz, a Goleta resident who operated the Family Medical Clinic in Santa Barbara, was found guilty following a two-and-a-half-week trial in federal court. Diaz faces a maximum possible sentence of 1,360 years in federal prison. He is scheduled to be sentenced on December 14. In one year alone, Diaz wrote prescriptions for more than 1.7 million doses of painkillers. His patients typically paid cash, waited hours for a 10-minute visit with Diaz, and received prescriptions for powerful drugs that included opioids, anti-anxiety medications, and muscle relaxants. Several doctors and pharmacists who testified during the trial said that they had never seen any doctor prescribe the combination and quantity of drugs he prescribed. The jury found that Diaz distributed the drugs outside of the usual course of professional practice and without a legitimate medical purpose. Doctors, nurses, and other personnel with Santa Barbara Cottage Hospital wrote to the Medical Board of California and gave statements to investigators to complain about Diaz. Cottage Hospital doctors believed that Diaz posed such a threat 
that they prepared a spreadsheet documenting emergency room visits by his patients who had been prescribed narcotics. Diaz was arrested in 2012. After his arrest, the state of California revoked his license after finding that he provided incompetent and grossly negligent care. An Orange County employee was convicted and sentenced for committing insurance fraud by making false statements and concealing information related to his workers' compensation claim. 43-year-old William Parker of Corona pleaded guilty to one felony count of making a fraudulent statement and five felony counts of insurance fraud. Parker was sentenced to six months in jail and pay over $41,000 in restitution. In 2005, Parker was hired by the Orange County Probation Department as a Deputy Juvenile Corrections Officer. In 2007, Parker was involved in a non-work-related motor vehicle accident which caused injuries to his back and resulted in loss of time from his work. He filed an insurance claim as a result of that automobile accident and received a settlement. But later in 2010, Parker suffered a back injury while working for the probation department. He filed a work comp claim and was taken off work by his treating doctors after the county accepted the claim. But he did not disclose the previous 2007 back injury. By the end of January in 2012, Parker told the doctors he still had daily pain. The doctor determined that Parker had reached MMI status and would have permanent work restrictions. Parker settled his workers' compensation case and continued to see his PTP in the workers' comp claim from 2012 until 2014. But on February 14, 2012, Parker was involved in another car accident where he was rear-ended by another driver. Parker visited his workers' compensation PTP and completed an updated medical questionnaire and intentionally admitted to tell the doctor about the new motor vehicle accident nine days earlier. Parker did not return to work until late February 2013 when he returned to a different position as an office specialist due to his claimed injuries. Parker then filed a civil lawsuit in 2013 for his personal injuries sustained in the second car accident in 2012. In the civil lawsuit, he made misrepresentations stating that he had completely recovered from the injuries in the workers' compensation case and that he had returned to work as a correctional officer. And another probation officer has been arrested for fraud, this time while on probation. 29-year-old Robin Palmer of Long Beach, a former Los Angeles County probation officer, was arrested on six felony counts of insurance fraud for allegedly forging documents to collect disability insurance benefits while serving probation for another insurance fraud conviction. Palmer was arrested while serving five years probation following her conviction on 14 felony counts of insurance fraud, forgery, wire fraud, and grand theft in May 2014 for illegally collecting disability benefits from Allstate Insurance. 
Palmer was sentenced to five years probation in order to pay over $31,000 in restitution to Allstate. Department of Insurance detectives were then contacted by AFLAC after the insurer identified suspected fraud by Palmer. The investigation revealed that Palmer was allegedly collecting disability benefits totaling $24,000 from AFLAC while being prosecuted for the first crime against Allstate and continued to do so after a conviction and while on probation. Palmer is being held at the Century Regional Detention Center in Linwood, California in lieu of $150,000 bail. If convicted, Palmer could be sentenced to five years in state prison. Eleven individuals were caught and may be charged with contracting without a license after a two-day sting operation conducted in Sacramento by the Contractor State Licensing Board. Among the suspects were two repeat offenders. The sting conducted by the SWIFT, or Statewide Investigative Fraud Team, took place at a single-family home in Sacramento. Four misdemeanor illegal contracting citations were issued on August 27 and seven on August 28. Sting operations are conducted year-round to crack down on unlicensed contracting, which feeds a multi-billion dollar underground economy. Using a list of suspected unlicensed contractors developed mostly from online ads and newspapers, Swift investigators posed as homeowners seeking bids for fencing, painting, a concrete driveway, and tankless water heater installation. Two men cited at the Sacramento Sting were no strangers to the Contractor State License Board. One had been caught in a 2012 Sting operation in El Dorado County, was given a probation term and a fine, and had been previously denied a contractor license. He is also a registered sex offender. The other man, on probation for a 2014 unlicensed contracting conviction, tried to pass off a contractor license he did that did not belong to him. All suspects were issued a notice to appear in Superior Court for contracting without a license. Ten of the eleven were cited for illegal advertising. Contracting law requires unlicensed operators to state in all advertising that they are not licensed. And now our medical report. A new study published in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery may help establish reserve estimates for future medical care following meniscus transplant surgeries. While most patients younger than 15 experienced reduced pain and improved knee function following transplant surgery, many patients required additional surgery within 10 years. The meniscus is a wedge-shaped piece of fibrocartilage in the knee that acts as a shock absorber between the thigh bone and shin bone. For younger patients with knee pain after loss of the meniscus, a meniscus transplant is performed to maintain a cushion between the two bones. An orthopedic surgeon executes the knee surgery by using an arthroscope to accurately place and stitch new transplanted meniscal tissue. In the new study, researchers followed 38 meniscal transplant patients under age 50 
who did not have arthritis for an average of 11 years following their surgery. The estimated probabilities of transplant survival were 88% at 5 years, 63% at 10 years, and 40% at 15 years. Worst case survival rate estimates were 73% at 5 years, 68% at 7 years, and 48% at 10 years, and 15% at 15 years. The mean time to failure was 8.2 years for medial transplants and 7.6 years for lateral transplants. This data provides surgeons with reasonable percentages that encourage delaying additional major knee surgeries related to a damaged meniscus. The longer-term function of meniscus transplants remains questionable because the survivorship rate of the transplants decreases to between 40 and 15 percent at 15 years. Patients should be advised that this procedure is not curative and in the long term and will additional surgery will most likely be necessary. Another new study published in Spine examines the postoperative narcotic consumption among workers' compensation patients after minimally invasive lumbar interbody fusion. The researchers examined 136 single-level primary minimally invasive transforaminal lumbar interbody fusion procedures in the analysis. One-third of the patients were workers' compensation claimants who were compared to their cohorts. The workers' compensation patients were younger on average, 47.8 years old compared to 57.9 years old among non-workers' compensation patients. They also had a lower comorbidity burden. Here are five things to know about the procedures. The workers' compensation patients had longer procedure times. Their procedures were clocked at 135.2 minutes compared to 118.9 minutes. The hospital length of stay estimated blood loss and day of discharge were similar between both groups. The average oral morphine equivalent consumption was also similar between the two groups after adjustment for age, ethnicity, procedure times, and comorbidity index. Even though there are concerns that workers' compensation patients use more opioids, this study demonstrated the total narcotics consumption between workers' compensation and non-workers' compensation surgery patients are similar during the immediate postoperative period. The amount of narcotics used could still vary from after the immediate postoperative period. And in regulatory news, the State Public Utilities Commission unanimously approved a $2 million utility-financed wide-ranging investigation to gauge Pacific Gas and Electric Company's emphasis on safety in the aftermath of the San Bruno gas explosion. The panel previously imposed a historic $1.6 billion dollar penalty for the September 9, 2010 blast that killed eight people. Now the company's string of post-San Bruno regulatory troubles suggested that utility 
was simply too big to regulate and might need to be broken up. The investigation will amount to a deeper review of the company's organizational culture, governance, and operations, and the systemic issues identified by the National Transportation Safety Board. The Safety Board blames the 2010 explosion largely on PG&E's organizational failure and lax safety leading up to the event. The safety arm of the Commission will now work with an outside consultant to draft a report that will be reviewed by an administrative law judge in charge of the proceeding. Meanwhile, the Public Utilities Commission itself beset by criticism that its officials have too cozy a relationship with the utilities they regulate, failed to respond to a search warrant for records related to the California Attorney General's investigation of the agency's operations. A court document filed August 7 states that, after multiple requests and two months after the search warrant was served on the California Public Utilities Commission, no records have been produced. The Attorney General is investigating secret talks between the Commission and Southern California Edison, the state's second largest investor-owned utility, that led to decisions that are costing utility customers billions of dollars. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.